0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler and there's a bit of what just happened about this week. What just happened in politics? The Liberal Party blew itself up and now there's a new and very different Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Nikki Savva, columnist for the Australian and veteran political commentator, shares her thoughts on the explosion and whether Scott Morrison can actually beat Bill Shorten. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, runs us through the latest GDP numbers. And Stephen Kukulis, Managing Director at Market Economics, checks out the markets reaction to what just happened. Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, reacts to what happened with Amazon this week, which is that it joined Apple in the $1 trillion club. And Tim Lawless, Head of Research at CoreLogic Asia-Pacific. As usual at this time every month, t- takes us through the house price data for August.
1: Members on my right
2: will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting.
0: And now let's hear from Nikki Sava, veteran political commentator, columnist for The Australian, about what's going on and uh, the new Morrison government. Well, Nikki, when the dust all settles, what we've ha- what what's happened is that um, the silvertail rich uh, prime minister has been replaced by the bloke from Cronulla, who's the sharks supporter and a Pentecostal Christian, um, who is perhaps more of a populist. Um, isn't that right? Uh,
1: I think that just about uh, sums it up um, on one level. Um, He's gone out of his way uh, to paint himself as, you know, the ordinary bloke from the suburbs with a normal family, uh, still got a mortgage, uh, still in touch with uh, what ordinary folk are thinking, um, which is all very well because um, that makes the contrast with, you know, what uh, people thought about Turnbull, or at least those who didn't like uh, Turnbull thought about him, that he was... Mr. Harborside Mansion, he didn't have empathy with um, ordinary people and and so on. Uh, so, um, but I, I think, uh, like I said this morning, you can overdo the ordinary thing, Um because no ordinary person um, ends up being Prime Minister. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, but
0: you made the point point, um, that uh, the last bloke who was like that was a suburban solicitor named John Howard.
1: And and there was nothing really very ordinary about him um, except for uh, his appearance. Um, It's a persona that is cultivated, um, which can work up to a point, Um, People like to think, yes, he is a little bit like me, but they also like to think there's something more to him or her than that. And Morrison has got to prove that bit, and we haven't got to that bit yet.
0: I suppose the bottom line question is, do you think that Morrison is remotely capable of beating Bill Shorten at the next election?
1: Look, um, I'm... I can't say it is, um, anything can happen between now and then, right? But what we know is that two weeks ago, the Liberal Party blew itself up into smithereens and now he's the bloke who's trying to put the pieces together again. And whether he can manage it or not, I don't know that he has either the authority within the party or um, the strength to be able to do it, and that will be key to it. Um, unity is always the key to success. And if he can't bring the party together, uh, then I don't think they've got um, a chance of a snowflake in hell.
0: So the two things that are going on that you might call a continuation of the explosion in the Liberal Party are the uh, the inquiry into Dutton's uh, au pair um, affair, I don't know whether you'd call it a scandal or not, but certainly this ongoing thing saga. about his uh, saga with his approval of the, um, of the soap opera, of the au pairs, and the other thing is the claims about bullying, which Julie Bishop is now um, you know, kicking along. So um, where do you think uh, those two things are heading?
1: Um, well uh They're both damaging in their own way, Uh, one uh, particularly uh, for uh, Dutton um, because obviously Labor is going all out to show, um, uh, you know, he doesn't treat people equally. Um, People on on Manus and Nauru uh, are being treated harshly, yet, you know, these beautiful young girls who want to come in and look after the children of his friends... Are given an, an easy entree in, so um, that is quite an easy um, story to tell, and it and it is damaging if if Dutton can't provide uh, proper explanations for what happened. The bullying um, accusations, I think, um, are quite dangerous uh, for the Liberal Party. They are very much a part of what happened in the leadership coup. Um, The women particularly in the Liberal Party are um, outraged by what happened and, um, you know, they want to put an end to it and they want to put um, the spotlight on it in the hope that they can do something to change the culture. Now, um, good luck with that. I mean, there are already people uh, who are out there saying either toughen up, you know, or, or nothing happened. So I, I think it's just a bad look all round uh, for the Liberal Party, given that it, is, it has been um, singularly unable to attract um, women to the party. So I don't see how this is going to help them remedy that, and I also don't see how it's going to help them unify in the lead-up to the election. <laughs>
0: Um, when do you think the election will be? Because, uh, And I ask because uh, of Josh Frydenberg's situation where, you know, obviously he had a good day yesterday with the GDP numbers. Um, but uh, the the latest that a half-Senate election can be held is May the 18th. Uh, so if they had it on that day, um, then they, the budget would be during the caretaker period, which presumably means that there's no budget. Um, well... The, how, how I mean? Can does it look like Josh? If if they lose the election, that Freidenberg actually can bring down a budget at all?
1: Um, there's nothing to say. Firstly, that they can't bring down a mini budget in advance. Um, uh, maybe EFO uh, at the end of the year will turn into a mini budget type uh, document. That's happened before. Uh, Even before Turnbull left, though, they were looking at election dates, and they were going to uh, see if they could uh, stretch out the election timing to May 25, um, because I think the new Senate has to be in place by July 1, right, so long as there is enough time for the count to take place and and for the new senators to be uh, sworn in, etc., so, their thinking then was to move the budget forward a bit uh, as they did last time, and use it as a launching pad for the election campaign. Now, it is still possible that 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 is an option, I'm sure, is an option, but uh, do we know that they're going to uh, last that long? Um, I'm not putting um, at the moment any money on anything. Um, I think there are still questions about Dutton and his um, eligibility to sit in the parliament, which Labor is also firing up again. So uh, let's see where all that goes as well. It could be. And they could
0: uh, and they could lose Wentworth as well. I
1: suppose they could lose uh, Wentworth um, quite easily. You know, there's um, a lot of um, good feeling about the change in the deep north, right? Um, They are glad to see um, Turnbull gone. That's not the case um, the further south you go. So uh, people are still asking, what was the point? Why did it happen? We've had all these stories coming out of what, you know, what was in the pipeline uh, for Turnbull to do. We've got, you know, those good economic figures that you mentioned yesterday. So um, why did all this happen? Uh, there are still lots of unanswered questions and I think people are still a bit puzzled about what it was all about. And I don't think um, Morrison so far has has given um, them any reason really to think that, yeah, it was a... Great idea to
0: blow yourself up and do all this. And now to talk about this week's GDP numbers and the economy in general, here's Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Okay, Shane, the GDP pretty good yesterday, 3.4%, but it was kind of boosted by a decline in the saving rate. Um, uh, what's your overall view? Of it, is it uh, is, Are we muddling along or is it fantastic as Josh Frydenberg says?
3: I think it's somewhere in between. There's no doubt over the last six years we've just been muddling along. Growth was sort of stuck between 2 and 3%. We obviously perked up in the first half of this year and that, along with some upwards revisions to the latter part of last year, has now meant to growth is 3.4% on an annual basis. So that's a pretty good outcome. The only problem is, as you uh, say there, the savings rate has fallen to a 10-year a low. In fact, it's the lowest level since 20, 2007. Uh, so Australians are sort of keeping the spending going by running down their saving level, which I think is ultimately unsustainable. I think they were happy to do that when their wealth was going up as the value of the family home went up and their investment property investments went up. But with property prices now falling in Sydney and Melbourne, I think it's very unlikely that consumers will still want to keep running down their savings rate. And uh, consequently, that means that given continuing very low wages growth, that uh, consumer spending will slow down, all at a time when the housing and construction cycle is set to to slow down as well. So, yes, great numbers there, but I don't think it's going to be sustained at that rate. I think we'll slow down to a back below the 3% pace. Do
0: you think that um, there's any... Or much danger of a recession?
3: I'd say a recession is a low risk. I do think growth will slow down, but there are some positives out there that we have to allow for. The mining investment collapse that has been a big drag on the economy over the last few years, that's virtually, that's pretty close to the bottom. There are some positive signs regarding non-mining investment picking up. Export volume growth is probably going to remain strong. And of course, we've got this ongoing boom in infrastructure spending, public infrastructure spending. So I think those things will help keep the economy going. So I think the risk of a recession at this point in time maybe several years down the track, but at this point in time, I think recession is very unlikely.
0: And I, I suppose the thing that, uh, that that you highlighted before, and, and that is, you know, the low wages growth, I mean, do you think, is there any sign that that's going to pick, pick up? I mean, is there any future uh, in in that?
3: Well, I'd, I'd like to think so, um, but at the moment, I still can't see it. We, we still have uh, relatively high unemployment compared to the US. I mean, the US had to get their unemployment rate down to 3.9%, and all they've managed to do is get their wages growth up to around 2.7%, 2.8%. So we're still a fair way behind the US. We've got unemployment 5.3%. Middle lets come down, but underemployment is around eight and a half percent which is way way above us levels as well so if america's only managed to get their wages growth up to recently to 2.7 to 2.8 percent because of a very tight labor market we've got a very long way to go before that happens here so maybe if we continue with decent growth then several years down the track we will see wages pick up but i can't see it happening anytime soon if growth settles back into that 25 to 3% range, which I think it will, that's just enough to um, to sort of use new resources coming into the economy, use, use up new entrants into the workforce. It won't be enough to get unemployment and underemployment down such that wages growth accelerate.
0: Which I presume means that the Reserve Bank will leave interest rates where they are for quite a long time.
3: I think rates are going to be on hold out to 2020, um, and then uh, they'll probably raise rates right sometime in the latter part of 2020, but that's a long way away. And a lot of things could happen between now and then. But um, and uh, but I, th- I think you also can't rule out the next move being a cut. I, I don't think the Reserve Bank wants to cut again. I, I I would hope that they can avoid that. But if this housing uh, price downturn accelerates threatening consumer spending and threatening inflation on the downside, then uh, the Reserve Bank would have to respond to that with another cuss in rates. But my base case is no move from the Reserve Bank for at least another couple of years. But, but a reasonable chance of a rate cut? Yeah, there is a chance of a rate cut. I know the Reserve Bank sort of repeats the mantra uh, that uh, the next move is more likely to be up and down, but... Uh, I, I, I and that suggests a relatively low probability of a cut, but I, I think the probability of a cut is still significant um, and and can't be ignored.
0: And now here's Stephen Kukulis, our mate and managing director of Market Economics talking about the market reaction to the GDP numbers and what's going on in interest rate markets. Well, Stephen, um, uh, the GDP number did did okay for the dollar yesterday. It went up, uh, uh, went up, then it went down again, and now it's up again this morning. It's all over the place, the dollar at the moment. Um, firstly, can we just focus for a minute on the market reaction to the GDP number? Um, what was behind that?
4: look it was way above expectations not just the quarterly result which was a touch above expectations but our friends at the bureau of statistics revised up each of the prior three quarters so when the market saw the 3.4 percent year-over-year increase in gdp which was about half a percentage point above expectations the dollar did jump about a third of a cent bond yields backed up the stock market sort of took that in its stride and we had this reaction that well maybe the economy. Is as strong as the RBA has been portraying, and their rhetoric about the next move in interest rates will be up. That was the short-term reaction.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. But but uh, within uh, well within twelve hours, it was back to well below seventy-two cents, seventy-one and a half. Um, So it Uh, it went back below where it was before, well before before it it, it came out. As
4: we speak with. A little under 72 so um look it just goes to show that global developments uh can and often do dominate domestic news that we've got this ongoing issue of the us the federal reserve meets there in about three weeks time and uh even though we had our nice data on gdp here the us economy is still powering along there's inflation risks brewing there the GDP numbers that they saw for their second quarter data were remarkably strong as well. So the Fed's going to be hiking interest rates. And so when that went back into the equation, the uh, uh, the US dollar got a shot in the arm. And in fact, the US dollar rose against all currencies. So that spike in the Aussie to about 72.3 US cents was short-lived and um, we've dropped back below 72. So it's really a global story. There was a little bit of softness in some commodity prices too, really important for the Australian economy and the Aussie dollar. They both uh, impacted and I guess we're back to square one.
0: Just looking at the charts this week, it, it feels like the dollar really wants to fall, the Australian dollar really wants to fall uh, and you know, it keeps getting kind of dragged up a bit by, by data. Um, but does the does it look to you as if the trend for the Aussie is lower?
4: Yeah, look, I think so. I think that uh, if you're having a having a punt on which way the dollar will go over the next you know, three to six months, so a slightly more medium-term view, it, it does appear to be down. As we just mentioned, you know, the US uh, Fed is on track to hike not just one more time, but probably two or three more times over the course of the next six to nine months. So they'll, their um, short-term yields will be... Sort of two and a half to two and three quarter percent, conceivably by the early part of next year. Even though we've got better numbers here, we still have a low uh, inflation climate. We still have concerns about household debt issues and the fact that household savings were very were very low in the uh, June quarter. So the, the, the RBA here is not about to hike. So if you think about the fact that uh, come early 2019, the uh, interest rate gap between Australia and the US will be over 100 basis points. And it's gonna be very, very hard for the Aussie dollar to keep kicking higher. So if anything, there could be um, could be that break below 70 cents, which isn't that far away.
0: When do you think the Australian RBA is gonna hike? Is it Do you think that we're talking 2020? Oh.
4: I, th- I think we're talking something like that. Gosh, uh, forecasting a year plus into the future is always hazardous. I've been I've been burnt and learned from that over the last couple of years. But in fact, you've been you've been calling
0: off. you've been calling for a rate I, cut, haven't
4: you? I, I've been calling for a cut. Look, I think they're probably on hold. Yeah, yesterday's numbers were important, but the the rate cut scenario, the rate hike scenario, they're both uh, lacking credibility at the moment because if you look at the rate cut scenario, the one that I've been banging on about with growth at you know, 3.4%, they're not going to cut rates. So I'm I'm going to have to revisit that um, call on, on rate cuts. But the rate hike scenario is also um, quickly disproven when you look at the inflation and wages dynamics. So you put all that into the melting pot of monetary policy considerations, give it a stir, and you, <laughs> you come up with no change for quite a long time. You'll either need the inflation and wages dynamics to pick up before the RBA are willing and able to pull the trigger, uh, or you'll need uh, something like, you know, something like the housing market, which is still pretty soft. If that actually translates into a sustained period of weak consumer spending at some stage, then of course you'll get the uh, you'll get the RBA cutting rates. But for now, I think the safest bet's on hold for many many months.
0: Um, uh, meanwhile, the yield curve has been flattening for a while. Um- and, uh, you know, the, that is the difference between the 10-year bond rate and the, uh, well, I don't know, pick a, pick a number, the, the 180-day bill rate has come down from just this year from sort of um, uh, 10, uh, from 1% down to uh, 0.4. So I just wonder what, uh, what you'd make of that.
4: Yeah, look, that's a really interesting phenomenon. I think it, it's more being driven by the long-end yield because we know that the short-end yields have been unchanged, um, well, certainly from the RBA perspective. The long end, the 10-year bond, for example, is driven by a couple of pretty basic things. It's driven partly by expectations for rate hikes, and as we said, they've been pushed back and back and back since the start of the year. The other thing that feeds directly into uh, long-dated 10-year government bond yields is inflation risk, that you will hold these uh, bonds based on your estimates of inflation, and the fact that inflation in each of the last uh, two or three or even four quarters as surprised on the downside it means that the pushing up in 10-year bond yields hasn't been uh, sustained, a little bit like the Aussie dollar. Um, it hasn't sustained the move. So you know, here we are um, with the 10-year bond just around about 2.5% here in Australia. It's remarkably low. And the reason is that we've got inflation well and truly trenched you know, around about that 2%, plus or minus a few tenths. So. The long end is the one that's causing the yield curve to flatten because the short end yields are, are sort of hanging in there, but the long end yields are starting to fall because inflation's so low. That's the interesting question, and, uh, and again, the RBA do look at that when they consider monetary policy. And again, it sort of in you know, a roundabout way feeds into the sort of scenario of rates on hold because they're not going to hike rates when the when the bond market's so you know antsy about the risks for inflation.
0: I, to be honest i can't see why anybody this is just an aside i can't see why anybody would hold a 10-year bond at two and a half percent yield i mean uh, it just it just seems to me that the risks are so skewed i mean i just i just think it's just an absolute no-go
4: area it, it is but then if you stop and think for just a moment our 10-year bond yields um are still relatively high compared with the rest of the world it's an interesting sort of issue here that yeah we know the u.s yields around about 2.8 2.9 percent so in a, in a strange way, they're the high-yielding um, economy at the moment, the US. We're at two and a half. You then have a look at what's happening in Canada, in the UK, uh, throughout Europe, or well, not the peripheral Europe, but Germany, France and the like. Their 10-year yields are about one and a half percent. Japan, it's zero. So we've got um, yields that are higher than... Uh, a lot of similar industrialized economies that much higher, the only exception is the u s as i mentioned the 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 question there is that um, uh, with some of the regulatory changes that have been imposed on banks over the last or well, five to ten years they've got to hold government securities as a risk free um, benchmark against sort of uh, bad times coming along. so there's natural buying for these bonds, uh, whether the yields two and a half, three and a half or four and a half, and I think that's the uh, uh, as an investor, yes, I'd be <laughs> inclined to shy away, it's not a great return, but as a bank, you've got to hold these things because they're liquid, they're safe, and in the case of the next uh, crisis that comes along, you can liquidate them quite quickly and have cash to, to meet your banking obligations. So the banks have to buy them. Yeah, fair enough. So
0: the only people who are buying them are those who have to, and that's uh, understandable. <laughs>
4: that's <not too> <laughs>
0: And now let's get Steve Sammartino, futurist and author, on the blower to talk about Amazon and Apple being worth a trillion dollars each. Well, Steve, I noted on the news uh, last night that um, uh, Amazon and Apple are now worth quite a bit more than the entire Australian share market um, uh, at a trillion each.
5: So what are we going to make of this? I think there's a real risk for investors given the size of big tech if you think about the fact that Amazon didn't exist 25 years ago, in 1999, Apple was almost broke. And now what we've got is two companies, you know, worth over you know two trillion US. And in fact, the the top five tech companies in the US now take up thirteen percent of the share market. I personally I feel there's a, a very big risk for investors for a couple of reasons. The first one is I think we're going to see some serious look at antitrust violation from these companies. And if we look at the price-earnings ratios that they have, and if they do get split up, then what happens for investors is that the price of these stocks goes from fantasy PE ratios to reality PE ratios. We've got the, the share mark coming in at 25% as a price-earnings ratio, but if we look at Amazon, it's 181 times price-earnings ratio. And Facebook's you know, 23, and Google's 31, so that'll have a really big impact on the market if they start to get looked at as monopolists that are in violation of antitrust.
0: Is anyone actually talking antitrust? I mean, uh, it surely isn't just a matter of size. It's got to be that they are monopolies in some way. I guess... Um, yeah, well... I, yeah, go on.
5: Yeah, there is quite a narrative happening now, both on, on the left and the right side of politics in the USA. It hasn't so much hit here. It's certainly the case in Europe as well. Uh, Europe are calling for YouTube to split up uh, they're to spin off YouTube. But the thing that's interesting about these is that they are global monopolies and they're essentially now the digital infrastructure of the 21st century nervous system. And the way that they are monopolies is, is very interesting. I mean, if we look at smartphones alone, you've got two companies operating 99% of all operating systems on smartphones. You've got Google and Facebook buying any competitor before it looks like a real threat because they can actually spy on them through the data that they accumulate, so they know who's growing. If someone's doing particularly well they buy them out before they have a risk and one of the things that Google has done, and when we know that they're over 90% of search, even though they're only a smaller percentage, you know, 15% of, of advertising what Google do now is that they have their little cards, their information cards that happen on a search. Once upon a time you would look into a search engine for for flights, you would go to a flight company. Now they'll have Google Flights. They'll have Google Weather, Google Hotels in that first search option, where they're using abusing their market power to direct people into their own versions of the sites that they used to send people to. Now they're aggregating that data and using it. So in real terms, they're using their powers as absolute monopolies. And I actually think it puts investors and the economy at risk.
0: I suppose the point you're making is that if the antitrust regulators in the US come after them, um, then that's going to have an impact on the entire market, isn't
5: it? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we, we know the, the common tropes that, you know, when the US sneezes, everyone gets a cold. But I, I think that it, it will have a big impact a, across markets. The US is at its high, highest price in the last 10 years. We've been at, had a rabid bull market now. And given, you know, the size that these companies take now in the total share market, that would have a a, a wide impact. But I also can't help but think that uh, countries like Australia and and Europe need to regulate more heavily against these organisations because they're now the infrastructure. Infrastructure used to be something that was nationalised and owned. It was roads, waterways and energy, but now information and the spread of information is really the most important form of business infrastructure. And we don't own any of it in Australia. We have nothing when it comes to... Uh, tech companies. If you look at what China did, they were the smart ones. I and mean, some people say that they let these companies in their country long enough to learn from their IP. And I'm being generous when I say the word learn. And now they have their own versions of that because they understand that the critical infrastructure of this century is information. So they have JD.com, they have Alibaba, you know, they have uh, Tencent that has all their social platforms, and Yoku, which is their version of YouTube. So we need to get a little bit wise and potentially regulate against this. Even though I think it would shake up the share markets and what happens in, in global finance, I think it's what we need right now so that we can have a competitive environment going forward. I don't think Australia is
0: in any position to regulate them, don't you? I mean, uh, it's it's for us, yeah, I do. It's, way, it's way too
5: late. What can we do? Well, we, we can, absolutely we can regulate, just the same way the GDPR regulates. We can say that you know within this marketplace, there are certain things that you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to you know, spy on competitors or take data on someone's phone. We could have regulations on our terms and conditions that are more uh, looking at the things that Google and Amazon and Facebook do so that um, the way they interact with consumers in this market is different. And it might mean that they'll need to have a separate set of code for dealing in this market, but absolutely, we can regulate against it just because they're operating in a different market. It's the same as having food regulation or energy regulation here or, or car regulations on you know, cars having a safety belt just because you're from overseas. It doesn't mean you can't regulate against it. And fact, I, suppose I,
0: I, I suppose what I meant was the, that we can't do what China did, which was to establish their own versions of the same things, basically forcing the uh, companies to hand over the technology. It's a bit
5: late for Yeah, that. I don't think we could... Look, we certainly can't do it that way, but I think that if we protect consumers from some of the things that they're doing with their information and the way they're taking people's data and not rewarding us for it and, and obfuscating how the data is used, that would be a first step in the right direction. Uh, yeah, again, it would be much tougher to, to I, I guess, second the IP and, and create versions of it here at a nationalistic level. That's not something we can do, but to regulate against it, I think would enable a more competitive environment because ostensibly if you want to connect with your consumers now you almost have no choice but to go through the big tech companies and we haven't really seen it on a retail impact here i mean we're still under 10 percent of retail happens in e-commerce and potentially as amazon builds out an infrastructure which is what they're doing they're they're a global logistics and infrastructure company (laughs) they're running more than 10 757 jets themselves at the moment and their biggest growing source of revenue is for their customers to advertise on Amazon to sell things on Amazon. And if that's not monopolistic behavior, I, I really don't know what is.
0: Well, and also a third of the value, I think, is, uh, is based on their web services, the cloud computing business. And as you say, yeah, uh, that is basically a utility.
5: That's right. It is a utility. In fact, 42% of all internet traffic now goes through Amazon on their web service providers, you know, that's that's it's very significant. And if Amazon web servers go down, the, the internet goes dark. It's almost as if the lights went out. And so, you know, I just think that what we need from a, a, a commercial perspective and an investing perspective is greater knowledge within investing circles and certainly within our government to understand the breadth and the tentacles of these organisations. And, and, and they get away with it uh, because there's a little bit of chicanery and a lot of the stuff they do is... It's almost like it's hidden underground. This infrastructure—it's you know almost the dark side of the internet that people don't see, and that's because we we don't have the knowledge. We only see the interface that we have on our laptop or our smartphone. But their tentacles go very deep, and I think you know part of the business narrative needs to be looking at how deep those tentacles go.
0: And now for our monthly chat about house prices, here's Tim Lawless, Head of Research at CoreLogic, to tell us about the August house price data. Well, Tim, uh, another decline national house price average or median in August, 11th month in a row. Are we just going to continue to see this gentle, soft landing, do you think?
2: At this stage, uh, I think so. Uh, we aren't seeing any signs of the markets about to either flatten out or, or for that matter, turn around. Uh, remember the, the primary factor really driving the slowdown is, is tighter credit, and uh, we, we aren't seeing that changing at all. In fact, we now have the prospect that uh, mortgage rates are going to be edging just a little bit higher with with the first uh, of the big four announcing a a 14 basis point rate hike last week. So, with uh, with that in mind, there could be some further uh, downward pressure on prices.
0: Yeah. So um, it uh, it really remains to be
2: seen. What, what
0: what were the things that stood out for you from the August data?
2: I think there's a, there's a couple of... I mean, we're obviously seeing Sydney and Melbourne continuing to decline. That's, that's becoming old news now, I guess, in many ways. Uh, but some of the, the more recent events were that we've seen Hobart, which has been absolutely the standout, uh, best-performing capital city, has now seen two months where values have slipped a little bit lower. I think this is probably sending a signal that... Uh, affordability constraints and and the tighter credit regime uh, is starting to slow down the Hobart market as well. And another really interesting turn of events is that Brisbane's unit market, which has also been the focus of a lot of uh, uh, negative movements because of the oversupply of of apartments, has actually moved back into positive growth territory and actually tracked uh, um, two months now where where values have risen on an annual basis. Uh, We are seeing some momentum gathering in Brisbane's unit market, even though unit values remain uh, about 11% lower than what they were 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, right. And and um, give us a bit of detail on what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne.
2: Well, the Sydney marketplace uh, peaked in, in July a year ago. We've seen values fall by 5.6% since that time. we are seeing this growing trend where the premium end of the marketplace is certainly leading uh, uh, this downturn. In fact, we've seen Sydney's top end, so the most expensive 25% of the market, has seen values fall by 8.1% over the past 12 months. Very similar trend in Melbourne, where we've seen the most expensive quartile is down by 5%. The most affordable quartile in Melbourne is actually up by 6%. Highlighting the, uh, I guess, the, the surge of first home buyers into the marketplace in both Sydney and Melbourne, as they chase stamp duty concessions, is really supporting demand across that more affordable spectrum of housing uh, prices. Um, yeah, and
0: and so uh, do you th- is is that likely to continue? Do you think that the the expensive houses are going to keep falling more rapidly than um, lower price uh, lower priced houses? I mean, what's the what does the um, history tell you about that?
2: Yeah, short term, I'd expect that trend to continue, but I think over the medium to long term, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if we see these uh, this trend actually uh, turn around. Uh, we're already seeing the first signs that first home buyer activity is starting to flow down a little bit. Those concessions for stamp duty um, have been inflationary, so we are seeing properties that are the more affordable end of the pricing spectrum have actually become less affordable. So uh, um, even though we're seeing prices falling, first home buyers, which are very price sensitive, actually facing higher prices and those stamp duty concessions have um, largely evaporated in the sense that prices have risen by by more than what they're saving. Uh, the other side of course is that the premium end of the marketplace generally does show scarcity and I wouldn't be surprised if we do see that underlying scarcity of housing in that sector start to, uh, to, to shine through and, and hold values up around um, uh, the inner you know, city markets and the coastal markets, which we're currently seeing values falling quite uh, quite rapidly.
0: Mm, I suppose that that particularly uh, is true if immigration continues uh, at the current level.'
2: That's, that's that's a big wild card. You know we're seeing migration from overseas has actually slowed down a notch, uh, particularly in those those markets like New South Wales and victoria, that are the, the primary beneficiaries of overseas migration. Then you've got the other factor, which is interstate migration, which is clearly slowing down in New South Wales as we see more residents leaving to Queensland, but also looks like it's peaked out in Victoria as well at fairly high levels. So we might be seeing migration just starting to ease off a little bit. Another factor, just making the whole environment a bit more complex, is that lenders are really scrutinizing borrowers where their debt to income ratio is more than six times. And potentially this could have an impact on uh, on funding or credit availability for those properties at the higher end of the marketplace.
0: And happy birthday Roger Waters of Pink Floyd who turned 75 today. Now I was always on David Gilmour's side when they split up and had a legal dispute and I still am, Roger's a bit of a dick really, but it must be said his lyrics are very fine and uh, in particular, The Wall, which he wrote entirely, was a very fine double album. But here's uh, one of my favourite songs from Pink Floyd and Roger Waters' pen Wish You Were Here. That's it for me this week. Have a great week.